The Sons of Chapter 11 The True King of the Hegemon This chapter is really a great chapter and one that's very important for understanding the ideals of Confucian government compared to what we have especially today throughout the modern world and it's fairly thorough and in one sense this is a good chapter actually to begin if you're trying to find a very quick and expedient way to understand Confucian government it would actually be chapter 11 and even though of course governing and lordship and true kings and hegemons have been discussed in prior chapters we don't have such a clearly structured way to compare them so let's go into this chapter the first part is the state is the most efficacious instrument in the world and to be the ruler of men is the most efficacious power in the world in other words government is the most efficacious thing in the world for producing change either of negative change or positive change so this is why i always say if there's some problem in your life it actually does go back to the government not in the sense that it should necessarily simply hand out something like uh, welfare or benefits but the way that its policies are structured the people who lead it they are surely the root of what's happening in society and that also pertains to all parts of your personal life it's simply a reality i'm not saying that this is um necessarily a great thing or not and certainly a lot of libertarians would disagree with me that uh, my emphasis on government but is simply the reality <clears throat> because the state does have the ability to move money around it does have the ability to approve of things and it does have the ability to reward and punish and it does have the ability using these two powers to be able to change how the culture works the economy works etc and because of the way that human nature is set up people look to those who have power who have wealth as role models naturally this is how most people are it's very rare to find people who will naturally do what's good for its own sake even if they're outmatched even if they're outpowered even if they're the complete underdog very few people will be willing to be like that and so even religious people in a sense if they believe their god is ultimately victorious is the most powerful entity in the universe is simply another extension of a powerful person being a role model for those underneath him one something that um, i can imagine some certain uh, people who are religious uh, say christians uh, one thing i can imagine them say is well at my church people are much nicer than the people uh, in the rest of my community um, and they they recognize this and they, they might think well you don't uh, you don't need necessarily a king to rule over you to be a better person and even in this case i would actually disagree i would say that if you're a christian person then god is your king and god sets the example that you follow and god is of, of course according to your set of beliefs all powerful so it actually is a perfect illustration of the ability of a powerful person to be a natural role model for those within this community in this case your community is your church and god is your king and so so therefore religious people in a sense do not actually 
live in a democracy, mentally speaking, but they actually, in some to some degree, um, live under a monarchy, at least within their souls. Let's go ahead and look into the next paragraph. This is where Sunzi will start to delineate between the true king, what he bases his governing on, and the hegemon, and what the hegemon bases his governing on. So, if E is established as your foundation, then you will become a true king. On the other hand, if it's trustworthiness as your foundation, then you will become a hegemon. There's a third option, which is that you're using intrigues and schemes, and then if that's your foundation, then you will perish. So there are these three options. Let's talk about what E is, how is that, that's different from trustworthiness, and what intrigue and schemes are. E is justice, is righteousness, is morality. And so if that is your foundation, you'll become a true king. That is much better than simple trustworthiness. Trustworthiness is if you say you'll do something, you will do it. If you make a promise, you will fulfill it. If you say you are going to punish somebody, you will punish that person. If you say you will reward somebody, you will reward that person. That's trustworthiness. And of course, that does generate power because people will fear you if you are a man of your word. They will also rely on you and they will also ally with you. And they won't want to let you down because they are afraid of what you will do if they don't live up to their end of the bargain. But of course, E encompasses trustworthiness. It is trustworthiness into a direction of morality, of justice, of righteousness. And so that not only inspires fear, but that inspires awe that inspires loyalty, that inspires virtuous and worthy men to give their lives up for you, that inspires the common people to seek refuge in you. What are intrigues and schemes? This is where leaders lie, they make promises and break them when it's opportunistic for them to do so. Advantage, uh, they follow ad advantage. Uh, and a lot of politicians, of course, do that, especially with their constituents. They make a lot of promises, they do fulfill that. And so his word means very little. And if he doesn't have money and other people to physically protect him, then he's very vulnerable because nobody trusts him and nobody takes him as seriously as somebody who is destined to become a hegemon. So E is the foundation of the true king's reign. The hegemon, let's talk a little bit more about how he reigns. He uses order to control people rather than E and ritual to inspire people. He uses punishments and rewards, which of course a true king does as well, according to Shenzhou. But this is more of a way to coerce people to doing what they want without using a sense of shame or morality or conscience to guide them. So it's not as effective. And ultimately Confucius points out that people, if you control them through laws and punishments, then they won't act out of a sense of shame or the conscience, they will simply try to avoid the punishment. And so you that order is not as good. And plus these people are not nice to be around if they don't act out of a sense of goodness. Okay, line 72, hegemon, this part 276 discusses why he, what hegemons do not do. Okay, 
And therefore, implicitly, this is actually what true kings do, but hegemons don't. So they, hegemons don't base their, themselves in government through education. Instead, it is the true king who does that. Education, teaching people what is moral, what is immoral, how to be good sons, fathers, husbands, wives, friends, neighbors, brothers, sisters. Part of this is some direct instruction, but also part of this is um, promoting people who are worthy and virtuous to be role models. Part of this is to change the culture. The true kings strive to become exalted and lofty. In other words, they work on their virtue, but the hegemons do not. True kings pursue the highest of culture and good order, whereas hegemons do not develop the culture. They have some sense of order, but not the highest order. And so because of this, the hegemons cannot make the people's hearts submit willingly. In other words, have natural loyalty, awe-inspiring loyalty. Hegemons incline towards tactics and strategies in war. And this is the way that many Western empires conduct themselves throughout history and today. And unfortunately, nowadays, there are no reigns of true kings. And I, even if we ignore the lack of an actual literal monarchy, there's nobody who, no government that attempts to educate their people morally, become exalted and lofty in their characters, and certainly not to develop culture. No country in the world today does this. It's truly a dark time. Now, there is that third category again. That's not part of this title, but it comes to it from time to time. Line 88. Uh, some people take control of the state in order to bring about personal accomplishment and personal profit. They don't care about E and they don't care about trustworthiness. They only seek profit. Now, this is a unstable situation and when life is like this in line 96 the ministers subordinates and common people all have deceptive hearts in dealing with their superiors and that's the situation today in many countries but particularly in certain places in the united states where there is just lawlessness and people are simply deceptive. And it's because the government and their leaders are only about profit. They're not reliable people. They're not trustworthy. They keep changing their minds. They keep changing the laws and regulations. They make fools of themselves. And so, of course, the common people would simply practice deception back. So just because your country has formerly been a hegemon, maybe 50 or more years ago, it does not mean it will always stay a hegemon. That's why major empires fall like the Romans did. Line 130 is pretty interesting. In speaking of the placing of the state, the establishment of the boundaries is not what is meant. Instead, what is meant by the placing of the state is what kind of model should you build your state upon? What kind of foundation? So one interesting thing is that Shunza does not believe in innovating new things necessarily. So line 143, if one does not use what has been accumulated to support the state, it will not stand. What does that mean to what has been accumulated? It means the accumulated efforts, trials, and errors of the sage kings of times past. That is what works best. Now you can innovate that to some degree, but you you shouldn't try to go out there and think, okay, well, communism does, monarchy doesn't work, communism doesn't work. And by the way, when most people say monarchy doesn't work, they don't actually have studied all the various types of monarchy out there. There are many more types of 
there's a greater diversity of monarchy that has existed compared to democracies and republics. Anyways, there are too many monarchies out there in the world that you can learn about in a casual way. You have to really devote yourself to studying the various monarchies that have existed. Now, um, some people these days will say, well, monarchy doesn't work, communism doesn't work, democracy doesn't work. Uh, we just need to find the next best thing, the, the new thing, something innovative, some genius has to come up with it. Well, that's very bold for them to assume that the geniuses haven't already lived before. And don't look for AIs to run the world. AIs don't have REN, they don't have humanity. And that's probably a discussion for another time, but uh, don't look for those things. And it, it, if somebody tries to program an AI to have humanity, that engineer must be a sage. <laughs> They're gonna, right? You have to be a great human being in order to understand human beings and be able to take a machine and simulate a human being. Otherwise, you just get some kind of weird sort of, I don't know, maybe autistic, meme-ish kind of entity. Like some AIs out there, they just uh, inevitably become, they just repeat memes and also say very racist things because that's just what they pick up on the internet. So uh, AIs are, that idea is rather silly. Um, you know, to put an AI in charge of a society, that's ridiculous, beyond ridiculous. Okay, so take hold of a model, Shunzi says, that is trustworthy for a thousand years to support the state and then we're the state together with men who are trustworthy for a thousand years. The next chapter will go into why you need trustworthy men, virtuous men. You can't just come up with a constitution or system of rules that's self-executing and works on its own. You always need good men to run it. Um, and so if one runs a state together with Genzo who have accumulated cultivation and Li ritual and Yi righteousness, one will become a true king. If you run a state together with people who have uprightness with integrity and trustworthiness, but then you can at least become a hegemon. But if you run the state together with men who engage in intrigues and schemes, then one will perish. This is also why something like uh, hoping for a perfect president to lead a country is not gonna change anything actually, because that's only one person. And if you have a system where you have all these other people being elected to run the country with them, let's, let's just take the United States for an example. You have, let's say you have the perfect president. He's just such a great guy, you know? Um, and he uh, has all the right ideas and he's, he just loves his countrymen. Perfect guy, perfect president. Well, what about the uh, 500 plus congressmen? What about the 100 senators and the 435 House uh, representatives in the House? What about those people? What about all the bureaucrats who aren't officially elected, but you know they're there influencing policy? And what about the guys right outside it, um, such as the media? What about all those people? Well, you're running the state with people who engage in intrigues and schemes. So that one person, that one president is not gonna be able to accomplish anything. That's just a sad reality. So this whole idea of separation of powers and electing everybody, that has definite drawbacks. Okay, uh, one line 186. One who makes great use of the state puts righteousness and profit second. One who makes petty use of the state instead puts profit first and righteousness second. Your country, I don't know who, where you live, but I can say for sure your country prioritizes profit. Your state prioritizes profit. Your government prioritizes economics over righteousness and justice because no country in the world is being run well. Line 202. If the state lacks ritual, it will not be set straight. As for the way that ritual 
the straight the state, one can compare it to the relation of the scales to the heavy and light, the relation of the ink line to the curve in the straight, the relation of the compass and square to the round and rectangular. In other words, ritual is the way to measure whether something is going well or not. Because ritual, we'll see later on, there's a whole chapter on ritual. Ritual contains moral principle and gives you a way to execute it artfully. And so therefore, if something goes against ritual, it also goes against moral principle, it goes against justice. 2.15, if the Lord of men, the king, hastens to pursue his own joy, but is slow in ordering the state, is his error not great indeed? Uh, you may compare it to like one who likes beautiful sights and sounds and is content to like eyes and ears. Is that not sad? Okay, this is an interesting section because this all the way to um, 2.45, the point here he is, Shunzi is making is that and he'll make this point later, is that you actually, the, the king actually has an incentive to run his state well. And this is, you know, people always think today in terms of incentives because that's how the government works. Incentives, punishments and rewards, and very little rewards actually, mostly punishments. Always using incentives, never using people's sense of shame or trying to instill a conscience in them or a sense of morality, always just punishing people. Okay, well, um, we think, we're taught at least, that democracies give, is the only system that gives proper incentives for leaders to do good things for the people, because otherwise you can't hold his job. Well, there's some problems with that, because if you, as long as you're good at lying to the people, you'll still get your job. But I want to point out something that Shunz is saying, which is basically that, uh, the king has plenty of incentive to rule well. Why? Because even if he is somebody who simply enjoys being a human being, eating delicious food, having, um, listening to beautiful music, having comfortable clothes, fine clothing, having high status, high rank, even um, being able to find beautiful wives, and having as many children as he wishes. These are not exactly lofty goals. These aren't, um, these aren't necessarily the things that King Sejong, who invented the Korean alphabet so that his people could read and to cultivate themselves morally. These are not necessarily the lofty goals of wanting the best for his people. But nevertheless, Shunzi says, Shunzi argues that if you want to have these things and if you want to have a relaxed, comfortable life, enjoying all sorts of pleasures in the world, you should be a good king. And furthermore, Shunzi says after line 245, his argument is that you're actually not supposed to, as a king, be completely consumed in your time looking at all every little detail in government. That's what your prime minister is responsible for. So the king, so of course the next question is why, why doesn't the prime minister just become the king? Okay, because the king is there to, we'll get to that uh, more uh, later, but essentially he is there to work on his personal virtue and to be a good judge of character and those things come hand in hand those things help each other so we'll get to that in a bit the prime minister leads all the other people the ministers the officials the functionaries make sure that they abide by the Tao so here we go, next page, line 284. Judging people's virtue, making use of their abilities, and then rewarding them with official position is a way of the sage kings. On the other hand, the line above says, doing everything by yourself or doing everything your oneself is a way of a servant. 
and that's not the way of a king. Paragraph that begins on line 287 talks about everybody's particular roles. There are farmers, there are merchants, aka businessmen, there are craftsmen, and those are the people who deal with the economics. So the farmers, the agricultural sector, the merchants, the financial sector, the craftsmen, engineering, and production. So those are fundamentals of economies. Then we have the fundamentals of political roles, uh, the grand ministers and officials, here cases, and they have assignments. The feudal lords uh, look over the land that they're entitled to, and they guard them against crime and invasion. The dukes, they create proposals and policies and debate over them. And then the son of heaven, the emperor, the king, he can merely keep himself in a reverent state, and that is all. In other words, this, this structure, once we find the right people for all of this, you don't have to worry too much. The structure works as long as we staff them with the correct people, and that's why the son of heaven, the king, they judge people's virtue and make use of their abilities and give them position in accordance with that. Perfect. It makes all sense. Now, how much... Now, there's a question here. Um, well, domestically, it might work out, but what if you get invaded? And this is, of course, a serious problem for Confucian societies and dynasties throughout history. Uh, so there's two responses to it. One is you're not doing it quite well, as well as you should, and that's why one makes you vulnerable. Let's see what's in this text here. If you look at lines two, uh, 318, thus only a territory of 100 li, a li is about a third of a mile, according to historians, is sufficient to win power. Achieving loyalty and trustworthiness and manifesting ren and e are sufficient to win all people. In other words, People admire you, people want to be loyal to you. When these two things are combined, you have enough land and you have enough loyalty, then the whole world is obtained. Not necessarily by taking them directly over, but by being respected by the world and having influence throughout the world. So that's the idea there. It's true, though, back then, the way that war was conducted was different because of a lack of technology. So back then, the more people you had and the more skilled warriors you had, you had a decisive advantage. Today, the more technology you have and the more economic ability you have to produce, mass produce weapons and ships and so forth and tanks, that's to your advantage. So now there's a fair amount of disconnect between uh, how war was conducted back then and today, and therefore arguably a disconnection between, um, you know, being a person of leader of Ren and E and being able to win wars. There's a larger disconnection these days. Now, I would still argue that if you can inspire other people, they will come to your side. People with knowledge, people with expertise, people with skill, people with experience. And that isn't going to be different. So that's why uh, nearly 100 years ago, um, I suppose it is uh, about 70 years ago, what had happened was when the, the Soviet Union does not did not have the ability to understand um, nuclear physics, uh, you know, to the degree where, you know, um, in other words, the United States was the only uh, country in the world that had the bomb. And then the Soviet Union did not independently by themselves invent their own version. Instead, there were um, people who were scientists that went over to the Soviet Union and taught them how to do it because they believed in the ideals of the Soviet Union. So we all know that, of course, the Soviet Union, um, as we see from the vantage point of history, they're not good people. But even the mere appearance of it still inspired 
people to come over. So how much more, Shunzo might argue today, how much more would that be the case if you had real E and Ren? If your leadership, if your goodness and your benevolence were genuine and not fake like that of the Soviet Union. So, on line 334, Shunzo says, thus, being a true king rests in getting people to submit to oneself. In other words, he's exercising his leadership through Yi, Ren, Li, and he gets to make use of other talents because people come to him being loyal and providing sincere effort. So as long as you have a minimum of land and people, then you can, and you have a good reputation, you can attract people towards you. Now, now earlier I was saying that uh, the king has an incentive to be a good leader. And this, this section here explains this a bit more. Line 340. Eight, to be as noble as the son of heaven, to be as rich as, to possess the whole world, to have a reputation as being a sage, to control all others while not being controlled by any other. Um, here, control really means to have authority over others. These are what people's natural position are the same in desiring, but a true king is the only one who gets to have all these things. And he, he goes on and says, you know, to have nice colors, good music. Um, even later down, he says, you know, it says the women he enjoys. What, what he means is he gets to, um, you know, back then, uh, today people are very fixated on monogamy. Um, I'm not going to have the discussion right here on monogamy versus polygamy. I, I, that's not what I want to talk about here. Um, but back then, um, it was acceptable for kings, um, it's, uh, people, men in general, to have more than one wife and, and kings. Um, it made sense for them politically to have more than one wife because they need to have an heir. If you don't have an heir, you're really risking a civil war. It's really better for this one person to have a few wives so that we can at least ensure an heir uh, because otherwise, you know, thousands, millions of people will, could die in a civil war. Um, so, you know, is it really that big of a deal? Does it really bother you that, you know, your king has more than one wife? Uh, I, I don't think it should. And furthermore, there's a lot of wealthy men who essentially have more than one woman anyway. They're just not being honest about it. They're not being transparent about it. Okay. So anyways, um, when a king, this phrase really is talking about the fact that the king um, has a number of wives and they are all uh, able to be attractive, not necessarily through handpicked selection because, uh, you know, Confucian monarchs, um, you know, there's a, uh, it's not like in England uh, historically where you find a lot of cases where the king uh, just happens to run into some woman, but she's already married, and uh, then she, she, he wants that married woman or that widowed woman, and it causes a bunch of political problems. That's something that happens a lot in the Shakespearean historical plays. But, um, you know, that's effectively prevented in Confucian culture because uh, there's a very clear separation between unmarried men, oh, sorry, men and women who are not married to each other. So this kind of situation doesn't really happen. This also gets into um, one reason why it is a meritocracy in, in, in a sense back then, but no women serve in government because this just uh, opens up the potential for a, for a major scandal. And um, you don't want to you know, participating in government should not be about one's personal ambitions, ever. It should always be to serve the whole country. 
so I don't buy this whole argument of, well, what if Weber really wanted to be a prime minister or whatever? It doesn't really matter. The question is, would that have been good for the whole country? So that's also another discussion um, about, uh, you know, Shunzi here is not, um, not addressing this question, but um, if you're looking at E and Ren governing, there's a discussion there in that lecture series about why um, it would actually make sense that only males serve in, in government. It has to do with things like probability and the prevention of scandals and uh, a meritocracy not for individual advancement, but rather so that the country, whole country is stable. So if you want to look into that, uh, that's a good place there. Um, <clears throat> so there's again two reasons why the son of heaven or the king gets to have a very uh, luxurious lifestyle, we can say, um, even though the luxury that upper class people have today is probably a lot greater than what the king treated himself back then. By luxurious, we mean pleasant, you know, like a middle class. Um, uh, well, I, I don't know for sure these days what middle class really means anymore, so I won't make that comparison. But the king is not spoiling himself entirely, right? But he does, of course, have a lot of nice enjoyments in life. So number one is that having comfort will free him up to work on himself, work on his virtue, uh, to cultivate himself and so forth. So if, you know, we've all had to do as, um, if you're a commoner like me, then you probably had to deal with some chores that, you know, it's not making you a better person. It just needs to be done. Like cleaning up the toilet, it just needs to be done. And you probably have to kind of relax after that because nobody likes doing this kind of work. So you don't want your king to get caught up on that. He's the whole country rests on his foundation. So you want him to relax and be able to focus, have quiet and comfort so that he can work on himself. He can develop his wisdom. And it is a bit of, a, uh, ultimately, you can't be completely free of stress. You still have to judge the people who are your subordinates, your prime minister and, and so forth. And, um, that's a bit stressful. And of course, there are always people uh, from other countries who might come in and declare war on you. And that's of course another source of stress. So you want them to be, you want them to be uh, comfortable. The other thing is what I said before, in order to keep this situation of comfort and pleasure, you're incentivized to reign well, because otherwise you just start worrying about more and more problems or simply it gets taken from you you get overthrown or uh, exiled or even executed. That's also something that's very interesting about, you know, people think that, oh, kings can easily become tyrants. This is actually not the case because the king is just one person. You know, people still have to listen to him for him to get anything done, anything in the world. And furthermore, uh, plenty of tyrants have been overthrown. So there are, there are incentives to be a, a good king. Um, around 386 is a discussion that begins about why have things not worked out well in a thousand years? Okay, he says, for a thousand years, these two sides, the king and the ministers, have not come together harmoniously. Why? And he says, it is because the rulers of men have not been objective and the ministers have not been loyal. So the rulers of men are being biased, prejudiced, and they don't let it, worthy men close to them and in, in higher ranks. In other words, they keep worthy men outside of their circle. And they promote other people instead. And as for the ministers, they fight over posts and become jealous of worthy men. So the rulers of men has to be objective. He says, 
uh, be broad-minded. Let them pay no heed to closeness or distance of relationship. In other words, don't just put your cousin to be in a high position because he's your cousin. Show no bias towards noble or lowly. In other words, this guy might be born the son of a count, but you know, don't be biased towards him because of that. Somebody might have a lot of talent, be a commoner, put him in the prime minister position. Seek only who those who are truly capable. Excellent. Line 422. And so when the models of government make for good order, the rulers' assistants are worthy men, the people are honest, the customs are fine, and all four of these things, if they are uniformly present, this is called making the superior kinds the one and only type. So you need to emphasize these four things, good order, worthy men, honesty in the people, and work on the culture. That's what he means by the customs are fine. Your country does not work on your culture. That's why it's just getting worse and worse decade after decade, and people are doing more and more offensive and ridiculous things. Uh, line 438. Thus, even though the models of government among the hundred kings were not identical, their fundamentals were in this manner one and the same. So we're talking about the fundamentals of good government. Superiors all had utmost concern for their subordinates and regulated by means of ritual. The way that superiors treated their subordinates was through was as if they were caring for a newborn. Uh, later down, is, he says, if anything was not well ordered, even something very small, then they would not apply it to the people, even orphans, widows, and widowers. Therefore, as for the way that subordinates loved their superiors, they delighted in them as their own parents, and they could be killed, but they could not be made to disobey their superiors. So in other words, they're going to sacrifice their life rather than betray their superiors or lords. Everybody took this, meaning the way probably, uh, as their exalted standard of correctness. After this, each inspected himself. Okay, so here in this paragraph, what he's talking about is, in a few words, the fundamentals of Li, that's regulating by means of ritual, Ren, that's caring for their subordinates as of caring for a newborn, Zhong, this is where the people are loving their superiors, but it also goes the other way, where the superiors they scrupulously figure out what is good and correct and righteous, and then they apply it to all the people, even the very most vulnerable of the people in their society. That's Zhong. It goes both ways. And the exalted standard of correctness refers to E. And inspecting yourself, that is to develop the virtue. So Yi, Li, Ren, Zhong, and De. That is the foundations, the fundamentals of proper government. And this, many of these things, particularly Li, is what is unique to Confucian philosophy. Confucian political philosophy, at least. Next paragraph is now talk, saying, after you have these things, then you can, you can have order, specialization and hierarchy. In other words, the farmers, the merchants, the craftsmen, the grand ministers and officials, the feudal lords, the dukes, the son of heaven. There's almost a repeated paragraph, as we discussed before, a couple pages back. Everyone was well-ordered and lived in accordance with the proper distinctions. In other words, there's proper hierarchy based on virtue, based on talent, and everybody's better off as a result. This is something in which the hundred kings were the same. And such is the great division of society brought upon by rituals and proper models. 
So Sunjit is saying that he says literally that among the hundred kings, their models of government were not identical. There's no exact precise way to do this. But the fundamentals need to be the same. The, the basic foundation, the cornerstones, need to be the same. Again, Li, Ren, Zhong, Yi, De, ritual, humanity, benevolence, virtue, Zhong is hard to translate. It's you know for you know work working from the very center or bottom of your heart and righteousness, e justice, morality. Those need to be emphasized in any good government. And as I've said before, your governments they prioritize advantage. They prioritize profit. They prioritize the material over Li, Ren, Zhong, Yi, and De. So, at uh, line 481, we go back to this idea of the prime minister. He employs, uh, he the prime minister is employed by the true king to direct 100 tasks. And you need to find a man of Ren, the noblest humanity. And if you can find this one right person, you can gain everything. There's this quotation of Confucius in line 520. The understanding of those who are wise certainly grasps many things, but they use it to watch over only a few things. So how could they not be but without keen insight? In other words, you have wise, you can grasp a lot of things, but you apply it to understanding a few things, and so you can have very deep insight. The understanding of those who are foolish, on the other hand, they can grasp only a few things, but they take those insights to try to understand many things. So how can they not end up acting recklessly? It's a very good point. There's a lot of people, they, they focus on some one or two things that they're good at. And then they try to understand everything. And we call those people doctors. Um, okay, that's a, kind of a joke. But there are people who tend to be like this. I'm not saying all doctors are like this. But um, I also try to avoid making another engineering joke. Uh, because engineers are more touchy about this than doctors for some reason. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying this is true for everybody, right? But um, a lot of doctors... They're very smart people. You have to be very smart to become a doctor. And um, they think because they're very good at this one area, they start to think they can be good political leaders and figure out policies and everything. Same thing with engineers. They're very good at programming or they're very good at putting something together that works. And then they start to think that because they're, they're the master of logic and reason, the smartest person in the room, and they, they start to yeah, you know think that they can you know, run the country. And, uh, you know, scientists can be like this too. And so uh, some, some people think, oh, there should be more scientists um, in, in Congress. Well, and, and fewer lawyers. And it uh, doesn't quite make sense. Um, I think people, sh it would be great for them to have a scientific background, but they still need to understand things like law and policy and philosophy and not just science. Uh, so, so this is in the Shunzu. This idea, though, is used to warn against um, ignoring the importance of specialized roles, because the next paragraph says, "In ordering the state, when the hierarchical divisions are set, then the ruler, prime minister, etc." They will stick carefully to what they are supposed to hear and what they are supposed to oversee. This is a sign of an ordered state because you have good order and people can focus on what they need to focus on without going too far beyond their position. In other words, they have the opportunity to just focus on their work and not be caught up on somebody else's kind of nonsense. 
At the same time, implicit in this hierarchy is that there are people who can oversee how one thing interacts with the other. And I think this is one of the kind of major problems with um, the way that we do checks and balances today. Because it's not the only way to do it, is to do executive branch, legislative branch, and judicial branch. Because oftentimes what we have is Congress is going in one direction and the uh, Supreme Court is going a completely different direction. You know, and then so you don't get any kind of progress. We just get, you know, we're just, it's kind of like running in circles and the problem uh, simply gets worse in society. So not really a uh, great situation there. Um, so when you have key, people like kings and prime minister, it all goes all the way up to him. Now the prime minister, again, what he sees is not every little court case that comes up. What he hears is not every little court case that comes up. And what he oversees is not every little detail, like is this section of the highway being constructed well? Right. But he is seeing overall everything is moving towards the Dow. Okay, the uh, next paragraph says, in the way of a true ruler, one controls what is nearby. It does not try to control what is far away. One controls what is prominent, one controls what is primary, and not what is secondary or, or obscure. So the true ruler looks at the fundamentals and what is close to him and what is important and what is the root. So in the next paragraph in the middle, is, uh, he says, going too far is just like not going too far enough. So don't get caught up in the details. In line, next paragraph, the enlightened ruler is fond of what is essential, but the benighted ruler, the ruler who is in trouble, is, or going to be in trouble, is fond of the minor details. The prime minister, again, is the one who judges and arranges the head of the hundred offices and grasps the essentials and managing the hundred affairs. It's not literally a hundred, it's just saying many, many offices, many affairs. Uh, he's in charge of the hierarchical divisions for the lower ministers and the, and the many functionaries. Uh, he judges accommodations and rewards. And then at the end of the year, he presents them to the Lord. Um, he takes specifically, uh, it's not, okay, this is, I, I want to clarify. Shunza says that um, at the end of the year, the prime minister takes the uh, successful achievements of the the uh, hunter functionaries and presents them to the Lord. Okay, so it's not that only once a year the prime minister talks to the king, but just at the end of the year, it's kind of like I suppose a State of the Union address. It's just it's just a large summary. Although these days people use a state of address to advance some kind of agenda and essentially campaign for a re-election. Okay, um, around line nine, uh, 590, so around line nine, uh, 590, we have A quick explanation of what needs to happen. Ritual need to guide the people. Ranks, people need to be ranked. Um, you give gifts of positions, emblems, and rewards to uh, inspire people to work harder. And you make the people's works accord with the times. Accordance with the times is very important. When there's a famine, you break open the stored grain. When there's a surplus, you store up the grain. And you could apply this analogically to just about anything. Okay. Um, they, of course, care for the people as if they're caring for their own children, as if caring for a newborn. And so a lot of this is kind of repeated. I like this last part though. Um, the common folk, for this reasons, the common folk honored the, the former kings like Shangdi, like a benevolent god, loved them as if he was their own fathers and mothers, and marched out to die for them without hesitation. 
And that was for no reason other than the fact that the king's way and virtue were truly glorious. And the benefit and the kindness he bestowed upon the people were truly generous. And so, Shunza says, a disordered age is not like this. In corruption, arrogance, and cruelty, the rulers, this could include both the, the one ruler and the effective aristocracy. So today, this would be like the politicians and the wealthy. Um, they stand at the forefront of the people in terms of corruption, arrogance, cruelty, and robbery. And that really describes today. The wealthy and the politicians, they are the worst of us, not the best of us. Um, 633, what is it that harms a state? It is to raise a petty man over the common people and give them authority. If you have a political system that repeatedly ends up doing this, you should think about replacing your engine. I mean, political system. Um, yeah, that's a joke. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that you want to think about a little more deeply. Um, so this whole paragraph on 633, you, you can think of not necessarily a ruler as specifically a king, but more generically as the government. So if, you're, if your government is fond of seeing petty profits, materialistic profits, this harms the state. Um, if they simply hungrily desire what others have, like oil, this harms the state. So you don't want to be, you don't want to have petty leadership. If you do not treat ritual and Lee as lofty and you're fond of greed and profit as Shunza says in line 653, then even if your state imposes copious legal punishments, government orders will not be carried out below anyway. So this is going back to what I was talking about earlier. If you don't have Lee and E, and you're just all about money, your leadership is all about money, then even though you threaten to punish the people, they don't care. They're not going to care. They're going to disobey. They're not going to follow the laws. Why? Because you're not doing what's right. So why should they? So a Ru, a Confucian, does not do things like this. He will surely implement proper distinctions completely. In the court, he will surely treat Li and Yi as lofty. And he will be careful about the difference between the noble and the lowly. Why? Because this encourages sincerity in your subordinates and honesty in the people. So the rest of this chapter, the last page, describes what happens in detail for an ideal country. And so we've got some things that are repeated in the previous chapters. Um, but essentially, if you do all these things, then you will have harmonious cooperation among the people. And you will have, this is called having effective government and fine customs. And you can use it for defense and you could use it even to attack. Of course, you will only attack um, for just reasons of justice. And you will have great accomplishments. This is what the Ru call implementing proper distinctions completely. It is the proper distinctions to raise those who are capable and put them in positions of decision making. To give rank to those who are virtuous so that they have these fancy sounding titles and people see these people and know this is how I should behave myself. To ensure that farmers only have to worry about farming, that 
engineers have to only worry about engineering that that merchants businessmen only have to worry about economic matters that people do not have to work worry about finding a job finding a way to support themselves these are also ways to have proper distinctions distinctions means to have your proper place and that's separate from that of others so people are not in conflict people are not wasting their efforts doing things that other people could do better the state is well ordered and everybody benefits than compared to a situation of chaos